Larry Bird's not walking through that door. We're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. It's my team. It's my quarterback. A kick. It is. Good. 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 To be the man, you gotta beat the man. The 2 1. Swung line drive left field. One run is in. Here's Kevin Green. This is the Powers on Sports Podcast. Welcome. Welcome back to another edition of the Powers on Sports Podcast. Appreciate you finding us on the various podcast platforms that you may be uh, investigating. Google, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify. We've got a good episode for you this week. We've got two great guests. We're going to talk to Matt Zemek. He is the He's an editor for Trojan Wire, which is part of the USA Today uh, network. Um, going to talk all things college football playoff. Matt's based out in Arizona, so we're going to get his thoughts on the Suns. He's got some breaking news for us concerning Arizona State and some possible recruiting issues with Herm Edwards in the football program. We're going to hit on the NBA injuries with, with Matt. Kawhi, CP3's got some issues, Kyrie. We're also going to hit with, we're going to talk to Matt about fr- the, the French Open. Matt's a big tennis tennis fan, so we're gonna get, I'm going to get his opinion on Djokovic's great win out, out in uh, Paris and Roger Federer as well. Following Matt, we're going to have Chris Torello. He is a sports director with the Spectrum uh, with Spectrum uh, News here in Tampa. We're going to get talk to Chris about the Stanley Cup playoffs. We're going to talk to him about the uh, baseball controversy with all the foreign substances and such. So, but welcome back, Matt. Appreciate it. it's been a little while since we've last chatted. Welcome back to the podcast, man. Thanks for having me back. I really enjoy it. Awesome, man. Matt's like I said, Matt's based out in Phoenix again. Uh, Matt's online Twitter is at Matt Zemek, Z-E-M-E-K is his Twitter handle. He does all, he, he, he tweets all the time about all things, politics, sports, culture, everything. So Matt's a good uh, follow on Twitter. So definitely want to reach out. All right. First thing I want to hit on, I want you to, you got some breaking news. You got some news coming out of your, your part of the country, some possible uh, sanctions and violations coming out of the Arizona state program update our audience on what's going on out there with Herm Edwards. Yeah, so Doug Holler, H-A-L-L-E-R, a great reporter. He wrote for the Arizona Republic, the Phoenix's daily newspaper for 13 years. He's now at The Athletic. And on Wednesday morning, he broke the story that uh, the NCAA is investigating Arizona State for a bunch of different recruiting violations Wednesday afternoon, about two hours before we went on the air, uh, Jason, uh, he uh, Haller updated his story to specifically say that the the one of the alleged violations is that Arizona State under Herm Edwards uh, tried to sneak recruits into games at Sun Devil Stadium in a flagrant violation of the COVID nineteen dead period recruiting rules. You know you can't have on campus visits, so ASU allegedly tried to sneak recruits into games. And so, you know, there's no precedent for this, you know, COVID recruiting violations. It's an entirely new thing, but one would have to think that with all of these programs being limited and trying to abide by the rules, if, if these uh, allegations stick and are proven to be true, 
that seems to me like something that's going to warrant major penalties, uh, major enough at least that ASU would be ineligible for the postseason this year. And, and many people think that Arizona State had the kind of roster, the kind of talent to, to contend for the Pac-12 South and for the Pac-12. And of course, you know, Todd Graham was viewed as not good enough by Arizona State Athletic Director Ray Anderson. He replaced Graham with Herm, thinking that ASU could reach a higher standard. But if this happens, well, you'd, you'd, you'd think that not only Herm has to go, but also Ray Anderson himself has to go since he hired Herm Edwards. And, you know, he's trying to, he was trying to change the trajectory of ASU football. But if, if these allegations stick, probably you're going to get a complete house cleaning. And a little side note, Jason, since, you know, we've talked college basketball in the past, Bobby Hurley and Ray Anderson hate each other. That's a toxic relationship. <laughs> so Bobby Hurley could get out of that bad relationship. He could get an AD that he likes. So ASU basketball could weirdly benefit from this, even though the football program might get smashed. We'll obviously see how this story develops and whether these allegations can be proven uh, to, to have actually happened. But there's a lot of uh, controversy around this. David Shaw publicly ripped Arizona State. I mean, when David Shaw feels the need to speak out on something, right. know something's there. It's not, just, uh, it's not just smoke. There's a lot of fire, actually. And especially for David Shaw, because I'm sure Shaw and Herm Edwards probably have a pretty good relationship with Shaw's history in the NFL as an assistant. And, you know, with, it, with his, you know, I would think Shaw and Herm Edwards would probably be a mentor mentee kind of situation with, I know Herm is much older than David. So um, for David Shaw to come out publicly and blast Herm in the, in the whole, that's, that probably tells you all you need to know about, about the, the level of concern there probably needs to be at Arizona state with the football program. Yep, he knows something's going on, that there's something real happening. Yep, yep. All right, so that'll be a story to keep an eye on. Obviously, follow Matt. I'm sure he'll have some updates, and obviously follow the Arizona uh, media out there. For, for um, you'll, I'm sure you will see some stuff in the days to come about all that stuff out in, there, in Phoenix with Arizona State. All right, let's, let's get to um, college football playoff. Lots of talk in the last week or so about there's going to be a format change. They're going to expand the playoff potentially in 2023. When the current TV contracts expire, they're going to go from four teams to 12 teams. Why don't you give the audience just a general overview of kind of what that means? How is the format changed? How they're going to select the teams and just some basic elements of what the 12 uh, team proposal entails. Well, in terms of how they're going to select the teams, it seems as though it's just going to be a continuation of what we had. And that's, that's a coded way of saying they don't have specific criteria at least in terms of the at-large bids. Now, at the top end of the playoff, the 12-team plan, th there is clarity. It's the six conference top six conference champions. Now, how they get ranked, you know, that's also a mystery. But you know, conference champions get the top six slots, and so that's good news for the Pac-12. Pac-12 is going to get in the door that way, and uh, you know, it also is. Good news for the group of five that the group of five is going to get at least one right because there are five there you have the power fives so that six conference champion that is a seat at the table for the group of five but then the at-larges i mean you know that's probably just going to be for television i mean you're probably going to see the sec and the big 10 dominate those slots let's, let's just be realistic so you know if like if you're the pac 12 or the big 12 or the group of five you know, what you really are hoping for is that you can get two teams in the playoff. 
like all things considered, that would, two teams would be a bonanza. But the SEC and the Big Ten are likely to be the conferences that get four, three or four teams in the playoff uh, under this uh, 12-team plan. Uh, the other really significant detail, Jason, is that uh, the first round games, so five versus 12, six versus 11, seven versus 10, eight versus nine, uh, those are going to be on campus. But the quarterfinals with the top four seeds playing the winners of those four first round games, those are going to be bowl games. And so a lot of furor, rightly so, that the top four seeds don't get to play an on-campus home game. You would think that, that they would be rewarded for being top seeds with an on-campus home game instead of having to go neutral. Now, obviously, the reward for the top four seeds is that you don't have to play an extra game. <laughs> You know, so that's, you know, that's accepted and, 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 and understood, but still they don't get that on campus gate and all the, the concession revenues, parking revenues. Uh, so if, if they're upset, I can certainly uh, relate to that and, and understand why. And then um, semifinals would be early January. And then the, the championship game would be two to three weeks later. They haven't come out with a specific date, right? But here's the thing about the semifinals. They, the semifinals are going to be on the second, weekend of January because with the NFL going from 17 games to 18 games, the NFL is going to be playing on that second weekend. And, you know, and that's going to be the final weekend of the NFL season. And on the final weekend of the NFL season, as you know, they don't play Saturday games because they want all the games to right. be played on Sunday so that no team has like a competitive advantage or disadvantage right. knowing how a division rival or playoff contender fared they all want the games at the same time slots. So that second Saturday in January is now open for college football. Whereas in previous years, or, and you know, like this, the next two years under the four-team playoff plan, uh, you know, you have the uh, wild card NFL wild card round. But with the NFL expanding to eighteen, uh, that second Saturday in January now becomes open for college football television inventory. So you know that the semifinals are going to be on that weekend. It probably two games on that Saturday, maybe possibly uh, a game Friday night and then a game Saturday afternoon. But I, but I would still say it's probably going to be two semifinals on that second Saturday. And then the uh, championship game would probably be on the Saturday before the NFL's conference championship games. That would be my guess. That has not been nailed down as an official date. But that's probably how it's going to go. So what this means is with a 12-team with a, uh, plan, if uh, you are not one of the top four seeds, if you're uh, in that 5 to 12 seed range, you have to play 17 games to win the national championship. You know, the 12 regular season, your conference championship game is game number 13, then a first-round game, a quarter, a semi and the title game. And, and if, you're, if you're one of the top four seeds, you still have to play 16 games, which is one more than what we currently have where you need to play 15 games. Right. So it obviously raises the question of, you know, if we're gonna ask these athletes to play an NFL length schedule, you know, where, what about the compensation? And we do have the name, image and likeness uh, coming along, but still no take home paychecks. And, you know, it's gonna be really interesting to see uh, how much of a uh, plot complication that turns out to be, how much resistance there is, how much uh, labor agitation there is, um, that that's going to be an interesting drama to see. And the other thing, Jason, the, the last but certainly not least, we don't know if this is going to start uh, after the end of the 12-year 
college football playoff contract. So that was set to run from 2014 through 2025, meaning that the new plan would start in 2026. There's a chance that this could all start in 2023. Right. The next two years, this year and 2022, uh, are locked into the four-team playoff. But we could see the 12-team plan as early as 2023, but we haven't gotten a uh, word on that. I would, I would think that it's going to start in 2023 because the pandemic was such a big hit to oh, athletic department budgets. They need that, that cash. And really, as soon as the pandemic hit, Jason, and it became apparent how much of a bath all the teams and all of the conferences were taking in terms of lost ticket sales, that told me that we were going to get playoff expansion sooner rather than later. So it, it really does – Though nothing has been officially uh, decided, I think we're definitely looking at a 2023 start for this 12-team uh, plan. Yeah, two points I want to hit on. One is Notre Dame is part of this plan too, and that part of the one of the proposals is they can be no better than a five seed because they're not in a conference affiliation. So that would be a tricky scenario in a year where let's just say Notre Dame was clearly the one or you know clearly a top three or four team clearly that they could no, be no better than a five seed because of their lack of a conference affiliation. And if and wonder if one will, if that'll get negotiated out of the final proposal or two, if, you know, Notre Dame decides to join a conference because of that, be moving forward. If I know they have a, they have an ACC tie in where they play a handful of ACC teams a year, but I know obviously Notre Dame wants to keep their money from NBC and, and wants to keep all their revenue and their options open. So It'll be interesting to see how the Notre Dame situation plays out because that, that, that could really be a, you know, an issue is if Notre Dame in, the, in, a, in a particular year is clearly the one or two, number one or two seed, and they're ended up having to be a five seed, that hurts the balance of the tournament. Let, let me address that point before you move on to your next point. Uh, you know, Notre Dame athletic director Jack Swarbrick was part of these negotiations. He was part of the working group. So you might wonder, why would he agree to it? Here's the answer. If Notre Dame goes 10 and two, it's going to get in. It's going to get into a 12 team playoff as one of the six at large selections, barring something really unusual. And, you know, unless there's a glut of teams that are 11 and one, almost every time, if Notre Dame goes 10 and two, it'll get in. So it's not so much about what happens if Notre Dame is unbeaten, you know, then Notre Dame, obviously, as you just pointed out, would lose leverage, you know, would, would miss out on a first round buy and having a better chance to win the national title. But it's the, it's the instances in which Notre Dame loses one or two games. That's going to get Notre Dame into the playoff a lot more often than it previously did under the four team setup. You think about 2015 when it lost that heartbreaker to Stanford at the very end that knocked Notre Dame out of the playoff in a 12 team situation, Notre Dame is going to get in. So that's where the Irish attempt to want to, you know, make up the difference. That's why they're fine with the 12 team arrangement that Swarbrick was, you know, part of the negotiations for. Absolutely. Absolutely. The one thing I do like about the the wild, the expansion and and obviously you have six wild cards is that's always going to allow the team like Boise State or Coastal Carolina, who's who might be in a Sun Belt champion, but they may not be a top six conference champion. That's going to give them an opportunity to get in. And almost every year, you're going to have a, a Cinderella kind of team that might be an 11 or 12 seed. There's always one of those every year that that we always think, man, if Tulane only played a little bit stronger schedule, they could maybe get in, or a Coastal Carolina or a BYU. So I like that 
and I, I would be shocked if not most every year, there would be a team like that that would that would work their way in as one of the wild card teams. Well, we saw this last year with Cincinnati and Coastal Carolina both being squarely in the mix right. for, uh, you know, in terms of be, having a high ranking. So, you know, if Coastal Carolina, uh, well, you know, they were both conference champions, so they both might have been able to make it in. Uh, so that that's one scenario to, to account for. And then the other one, you think about Boise State and TCU. Right. Remember when they played in the Fiesta Bowl? Well, under a 12, that, that was the 2009 season. So, you know, if you have two group of five teams that are both exceptionally strong, yep. then both of them could get in. And that's what I mentioned earlier, that the group of five, Pac-12, Big 12, the, the conferences that have not really feasted at the buffet table in the, the current college football playoff setup, they're going to want to try to get two teams in. If they get two teams in, man, that's a real, that's not just a foot in the door. That's, a, you know, ex expanded representation compared to what we've seen in recent years. And what I like, and while I also like what they, the way they structured it is I like how they didn't guarantee that the power five champions were in the tournament, because let's just say a four loss pack 12, pack 12, 12 team that was eight and four happened to win the championship. That doesn't guarantee that they're getting a spot. So if eight and four team might get left out if they're an eight and four champion, whereas a coastal Carolina might be 11 and one win their championship and they might get a six seed or they might get an at large. So I like how they don't guarantee a power five champion in, but the most, the likelihood is you're not going to have a four loss team. The likelihood is you're going to have a two or maybe a three loss team that might be, and they might be a 10 or 11 seed for who knows. And that doesn't guarantee just because you're a conference champion that you're a top four seed. You might be the eight, nine and three California Bears that happen to have a good season in the Pac-12, and you might be the 11 or 12 seed. So I like how they don't guarantee you a spot in if just because you win your conference championship. Very much agree with that. That's an excellent point. Uh, there's one other thing to be said here. You know, I was talking earlier about how the semifinals are going to be on the the second Saturday of January because that the NFL is going to vacate that slot. It's no longer going to have wildcard games on that particular second Saturday of January. So you can't really move that semifinal date around. So the playoffs, the playoff schedule after the conference championship games, it's going to be fairly fixed and fairly locked in. But if you're going to ask these players to play 16 or 17 games to win the national championship, what that means is I think we need to have the kickoff classic back. We need to get that back. We need to move the season up into the final weekend of August because right. that involves, that would create another off week. Right. So if you at week, you know, currently we have this so-called week zero with a handful of games in late August, you know, as much as people love, Labor Day weekend being the first full weekend of college football, uh, I think that under if under this 12-team playoff plan with that four-game playoff schedule right after the conference championship games, I think we need to push week one into late August so that all teams start a little bit earlier but then get another off week in the middle of the season. You know, if injuries hit, I think that's in a scheduling adjustment we're going to have to make in college football. And Andy, you have to remember you, you really want to stay off of Christmas week in December. You don't want to be playing Christmas week because you got to let the kids, you know, celebrate Christmas with their family and give them some time off. So yeah, in between the, so the first round, the first round games are going to be the weekend before Christmas. Right. And that also brings up a point that the bowl games, the pre-Christmas bowl games are going to die. We're going to see the bowl uh, pool 
get Great. sliced by, you know, at least like eight, nine yeah. games, maybe even 12 or 13, right. those bowls are going to bite the dust. And we're going to have a smaller bowl uh, pool uh, to choose from. Yeah, but yeah, again, bottom line is it looks like this is going to happen probably 2023. Like you mentioned, the, 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 the financial implications of COVID has really hurt. You want to move up as, as soon as possible that new influx of TV money to help these conferences and all these all the schools around the country. So it'll be very interesting to see, again, how it finally trickles out and, and what they agree on is, is 12 too many teams. You could argue 12 is too many, but again, it's, it's not a bad concept. I don't have a problem with trying it again. Like you mentioned, the 17 games for a college kid, that's a lot of games over a, a relatively short period of time. And again, if you're, if you're, if the, it would not surprise me if those teams that all made the playoff got a, some kind of player stipend for each one of those kids as part of the playoff pool is each one of those kids got an X number of dollars for being a part of the playoff pool. Who knows how that'll work, but it wouldn't shock me for having to play those extra games that those kids all got a piece of that pie to some degree. Absolutely. And so if, you know, assuming that this playoff plan gets approved for 2023, gets greenlit for 2023, you're going to see some agitation and some movement in terms of, you know, raising the alarm on that particular issue. And it will be a bidding war between the networks, Fox, ESPN. You might have some streaming services get involved in the bidding. So they're going to make a, they're going to make a fortune on this when it gets bid out to the TV networks. It'll be very interesting to see CBS obviously losing the SEC. I'm sure will be very involved in some of that bidding as well. So it'll be very interesting to see how, what kind of dollars they are able to generate for this 12 team tournament. Cause it'll be, it'll be massive. Yep, 11 high-end games instead of just the three that we have right now. That's, That's right. a big expansion. All right, you're listening to the Powers on Sports podcast with my my guest, Matt Zemek, out in Phoenix. He works for Trojan Wire as part of the uh, USA Today network. Let's, let's transition a little bit. I want to get to some NBA talk out in Phoenix. Obviously, Phoenix is on fire out there. They're, I'm sure they're going nuts. Uh, at the time of this taping, we had some breaking news today on Chris Paul. Tested positive for COVID, going to be in the quarantine for an undisclosed period of time. We don't know if he's already been vaccinated or not prior to this, if he's not been vaccinated. So give me your thoughts on just the, the excitement out there in the desert with the Suns, CP3, the whole CP3, con not controversy, but diagnosis of his COVID. Just what's the, what's the level of uh, excitement out there in Phoenix? Well, you know, for people who don't live in, in Phoenix, uh, this is a Suns town. We have to remember that although the Diamondbacks won the World Series and the Cardinals have appeared in the Super Bowl, this is still a Suns town because Jerry Colangelo founded this team in 1968. This is the team with the deep roots in the Valley of the Sun. Uh, the other teams came along, you know, at a much later point. You know, the Suns played that memorable 1976 yep. NBA Finals Series against the Boston Celtics. Game five, truly one of the greatest professional basketball games ever played. An interesting backstory on the uh, 76 Finals. One of the games in Phoenix was played at 10.30 a.m. local time in Phoenix. And Catholic priests were outraged that the, the game would start at that time. But the, the CBS had the Kemper Open Golf Tournament on later that day. That's why <laughs> CBS put it at 10.30 a.m. But, you know, but, but you had a packed house at 10.30 in the morning uh, for that NBA Finals game. 
And so this is a Suns town. This is the team that captures the hearts of people in the Valley. When the Suns lost the 93 finals to Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, they still got a parade. They, lost, they were the runner-up, but they still got a full parade down Central Avenue, uh, the, main, the main strip uh, in Phoenix. That's how much the Suns are loved here. So it's obviously just, it's euphoric. And of course, beating the Lakers yes. in the playoffs is just a huge point of pride for people in Phoenix. When I went to high school, the Suns were down 2-0 to the Lakers in, in the 1993 playoffs. And people were ready to just jump off a bridge, but then they won two elimination games in LA, then came home and won a close game five in Phoenix. Yep. Charles Barkley, uh, Kevin Johnson sons were able to make their way to the finals. And it was really uh, a, a tremendous moment in the life of any young Phoenician as I was back then. Um, so with the Chris Paul situation, the main thing is that the Suns need the jazz and the Clippers to go seven, right? right. They need those two or three extra days so that the West finals start, you know, three days later in the Tuesday, middle of next week. We're talking about Tuesday. If the if the Clippers in Utah go seven games, Tuesday night next week would be game one of the Western final. That's right. So they don't want that series to end in six. Although, you know, if Kawhi Leonard's out for the season, I think the Suns at this point would prefer to face the Clippers without Kawhi because that's a, that's a very diminished Clipper team. But so the worst scenario for the Suns would be for the Jazz to win in six. They get Mike Conley back for the start of the West Finals. Right. That you know, and you put you play Game One on Sunday in Utah uh, without Probably. Chris Paul. Right. That's that's the scenario the Suns want to avoid. And in terms of just the bigger picture, I mean, it's it's the same in the East as it is in the West. Injuries and player availability are the dominant theme. I mean, that doesn't require a whole lot of explanation. You're seeing it in every series. Uh, so, you know, it just whoever's available, it, it could be the team that wins uh, the NBA title. And, of course, if the Suns win it, it would be their first. So it would be a historic moment. It would become the number one professional sports moment yep. in Phoenix history if it happens. Hands and the down. interesting thing is about the Phoenix is they've been down for so many years, have been a non-factor for the last seven, eight years, and finally – they had they had the they had the good run in the bubble last year where they won all eight games down in Orlando. A lot of lot of excitement with Monty Williams coming aboard, but the acquisition of Chris Paul in the offseason with the veteran leadership with Jay Crowder coming aboard, the maturation of Aiton and Booker a little bit. I think the Chris Paul acquisition has been such a monumental acquisition for the Suns, and it's really turned that team around to where they I mean they are a legitimate title contender if Chris Paul can play and what's ironic is every seems like every time Chris Paul has some kind of playoff run, there's something that comes up hamstring, you know, this with the COVID he's finally health. We, everybody thought his shoulder issue in the Lakers series was going to derail them. And he got through that. Now he's fully healthy. He played great against Denver in the nuggets. Now this. So if is Chris Paul just, you know, What's the word I'm looking for? Is he just snake bitten or is this, you know, and the interesting thing that'll, that'll be interesting to see will come out of this is was he vaccinated before this happened? Was this a, I didn't get, I didn't get vaccinated. Any, any tested positive or was he vaccinated and tested positive? A Phoenix radio host, John Gambadoro, he's a sports talk host. He said that, that the Suns players should have been vaccinated at a point earlier this year. So 
He's he's saying that okay. Paul should have been vaccinated. Yeah. So take that for what it's worth. Right. Uh, right. You know, and 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 what what we also have to note, Jason, is just just stop and absorb not just the fact that Chris Paul is cursed, but that on the same day that the Chris Paul news comes down, the Kawhi Leonard injury news comes down. So it's not as though Chris Paul escaped the curse and the Clippers didn't or vice versa. No, they both got hit with the whammy on the same day. I mean, Chris Paul and the Clippers, they just keep stepping on that rake just when they're about to do something. It is absolutely remarkable. And, and, and I was watching that game live when that happened with Kawhi, and you could tell that he his stride, he took an awkward step, and his knee, I don't I, the, the, and the reports are that they people think that might be an ACL issue now, not just a knee sprain, which obviously ACL issue is going to be a major, major injury as opposed to a knee sprain. So, you know, I watched it live. I thought it was it was awkward the way he landed, and you thought, okay, he's going to get out of the game. But breaking news today on Wednesday as we're recording this is that he's probably out for the rest of this series, and they're not going to beat the Jazz, I don't think, without, without Kawhi Leonard. I don't think they're going to win a game even if they were to win game six in LA, I don't think they're going to, they're going to win game five or game seven in Salt Lake city with that crowd with Donovan Mitchell. And as good as, as Utah is, I think I saw a stat They're They're like 35 and one in the last 36 home games that Donovan Mitchell's played in. So at home in Utah. So I think Utah will find a way to get through, you know, LeBron James had some comments about, you know, the shortened season is causing these injuries I disagree with that completely because, again, Kawhi, Kawhi Leonard missed 20 games probably in the regular season due to load management. That didn't cause his knee injury. You know, Kyrie Irving landing on Giannis's ankle, that's not a – that's not that's just a freak accident. It's not a deal. James Harden missed a bunch of games in the regular season with a hamstring injury. Who knows if these guys are training appropriately? Are they stretching out? Are they flexible enough? We don't know that stuff. And for LeBron James – for the, for the lazy excuse for it to be, well, it's because we shortened the season and we didn't get enough rest time in the offseason. Give me a break. They had four months off before they went back to the bubble in Orlando in between last year. Well, they did have the four months off in the before the bubble, but they didn't have the full ability to train. I mean, because because NBA f- training facilities were limited. So uh, your point is is well taken that you know the, these these guys are professionals they're supposed to manage their bodies and you have had some freak incidents for sure what i what i take issue with with lebron's statement is that he said well i tried to tell people Please. come on if, if you didn't want to start the season you should have put planted your feet right that's that's what i take issue with like it was not a foregone conclusion jason that the season had to start just before christmas right all right they were discussing january like martin luther king day so are we gonna sit here and say that if lebron said i am not playing any sooner than martin luther king day you think that Adam Silver would have put up put up a strong uh, resistance against that? BS. That LeBron did not exert his political influence. And he's an extremely he's the most powerful player in a league, the NBA, where players are more empowered than in the other sports. So if LeBron wanted to do something, he'd get it. that that's the hill that I'm going to die on. I refuse to accept the idea that if LeBron insisted on a later start date 
for this season that he wouldn't have gotten it, or at least something close to it. And the other thing to note here is that, you know, a lot of high profile NBA players are not going to play the Olympics and the NBA wanted to shoehorn this season in, in a compressed format before the Olympics. The NBA wanted the Christmas day TV money on the front end and it wanted the Olympic participation on the back end. And now it's not going to have, you know, the full representation in the Olympics and, you know, players have been thrown into a situation where this, you know, this is where I think the rest and load management arguments are valid. Uh, you know, I'm coming at this from a different point of view. The past several years, Jason, you know that the NBA has reduced back-to-backs. Yes. Used instances in which teams play four games in five nights, the fours and fives. But then this season, it's been a regression. So you've had players become used to the more spread out season schedules and then now you compress this to satisfy the olympics and get that christmas day tv money and the lakers and heat we don't need to talk about the other teams but the lakers and heat had basically eight weeks off they had an eight week off season and that's certainly not enough preparation time so when you look at how the lakers and heat fared in this in the season and particularly the playoffs i think that's really the 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 place where the argument about the compressed season uh, contains some relevance. Now, of the other isolated instances you mentioned of a guy, you know, an ankle landing awkwardly. Yeah. Yeah. That that's not because of the compressed season, but the, with the Lakers and heat, that's where the argument really contains some salience in my view. Well, then, and, my, and my only thing to LeBron is then why didn't you tell the Lakers I'm going to load manage this year? He didn't load manage. Yes. I mean, yes. Anthony Davis, who's fragile, that his injury wasn't caused because he was playing too many minutes. It was just, he's a fragile player. If LeBron had some cojones, he'd have told the Lakers, I'm not playing till middle of January. Figure That's right. Out. He should have said, I'm not playing the first 20 games of the season. He should have said that. Figure so it that's out. His, that is his mistake. It's his cowardice. He needs to own it. This today Today's statement was pathetic. It was. I mean, yeah, I just – and LeBron likes to be a he likes to be a front runner, and I don't I wish he would you know he likes to make comments on things he wants to make comments about, but he doesn't say a word about the about the NBA taking hundreds of millions of dollars in China. That's right. All the stuff going on in China, he, he don't he, he oh I don't know I don't know enough about that to comment, but he's got he's always got an opinion on everything else, but he doesn't ever That's have right. a comment about the league. If you're gonna be outspoken, you can't pick and choose the things you talk about. You have to deal with it all. Yep. And if you and if not, then your, your credibility takes a big hit. Absolutely. All right, one more NBA talk, topic, and we'll get and we'll get done with that. What a performance by Kevin Durant last night! A historic performance with the Nets. Uh, game five against Milwaukee. Obviously, James Harden came back, was not very effective, but I will say his calming influence of being in the game helped the situation to some degree. I think. But what a performance by Kevin Durant. The one thing I'll say is. He's got to win the series because if they don't win this series, it's not a, it's not an all time performance. You got to win this series and finish off the Bucks because if Giannis comes back and wins Game Six and Game Seven, it's going to be forgotten. It, it, it won't be forgotten, but it'll be devalued a little bit as far as an all time great. And I've got my issues with with Giannis and his inability to 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 make a, a to, to perform in the biggest moments. But all credit goes to Kevin Durant last night, Game Five. Absolutely. And and we have to note that it's been two years pretty much since the injury in game five of the 2019 NBA finals. And so people were saying that, you know, it, it's going to take at least two years 
for Kevin Durant to get back to his normal self, right. you know, if as a ideal scenario, well, guess what? It's pretty much two years. Right. So right on, right on schedule with that. And of course, the other part of this drama relative to Durant is that, you know, he, he was, he had to watch from the sidelines as Steph Curry and Clay Thompson carried the Warriors past Chris Paul and the right. Rockets in the 2019 West semifinals, the same round of the playoffs we're in now. Uh, so he was the guy who was watching as someone else carried him. Now he's the one carrying a team while the other players are absent. Now he's going to get Kyrie, uh, or excuse me, he has Harden back, right? you know, for game six, Harden's going to play in game six, but Kyrie's still out. Um, so, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if Harden, I think Harden becomes the key player right now because yeah. he was just one of 10 uh, in game five, uh, played decent defense in post-up situations. And of course that goes to the Bucks. You know, you, the Bucks did not hunt him. The Bucks did not challenge his lateral movement. And in a post-up situation, your lateral movement isn't tested nearly to the same extent in a face-up situation where someone takes him off the dribble and forces him to have to move side to side. So, I mean, the Bucks were really, really dumb about this. It, it's, it's really staggering that the Bucks against a weakened, uh, shorter Nets roster without Kyrie and with a diminished Harden, the Bucks scored just 21 points in the fourth quarter. They scored just 32 points in the final 18 minutes of that game. It, it's just a disaster. And you know that you know that the moment the Bucks get eliminated in this series, assuming that it happens, and maybe they'll win in seven, but the, if they do lose, even if it's like even if the Bucks lose by one point in game seven, the day after, or maybe even just hours after, you know that Coach Bud is gonna get fired and they're gonna look for a new guy to coach Giannis. And then you know, you mentioned Giannis not performing. I mean, he's not receiving good coaching. Now, you know, if you're a player, you, know, you have to have some instinctive feel for the game. And Giannis obviously makes some bad decisions in fourth quarters. You know, he, he doesn't handle pressure really well. But, of course, that's also a product of receiving terrible coaching. And so the, Buc the Bucks clearly need a new answer there. Here's what I'm going to say about Giannis. You can, you can nitpick his game, and his, and his game needs some improvement. His inability to make a seven, eight-foot jump shot in the lane is woeful. And it's shocking that he's been in the league this long and still can't, doesn't have a good post-up game, still can't pull up. The reason he commits all these charges, because he if he can't get to the rim, he's pretty much ineffective. He's not, a, he can't pull up and make an eight-footer, a turnaround jumper, get, he can't get in the low post. And the other thing I want to see, I think Milwaukee will win game six at home, because I think you'll see Nash load manage James Harden. He won't play 46 minutes on in game six. They're going to save him for game seven, I think. He'll play even if he's effective tomorrow night. But I think Milwaukee will win game six. What I better see in game six and game seven, I better see Giannis cover Kevin Durant come the fourth quarter of these games. I, I don't want to see P.J. Tucker, who's a hell of a defender. I want to see 6'10 Giannis on 6'10 Kevin Durant if you claim you're the defensive player of the year, Giannis Antetokounmpo. I want to, you better, you better say, Coach Bud, I don't give a damn what you're calling on defense. I got Durant. Well, and it's not just if you're the defensive player of the year. It's if you are a superstar. Right. You take, you take on the toughest assignment. You take on the biggest workload. You take on the tasks that are going to make the difference between winning and losing. And this just brings up the point. Why, why isn't he asserting himself? You know, it's a player's league. 
if he wants the assignment, what is Budenholzer going to say no? No. So, I mean, he has to go out and he has to go out and insist on this. Yep. He has to realize that he he has to be the alpha dog in the room. The one other thing to note, uh, aside from Giannis and, and Durant and Harden, Drew Holiday. You know, he was brought in to be the answer. He was supposed to be the anti Eric Bledsoe. He was supposed to be the right. guy who gave the Bucks a, a different, much better dimension in the playoffs. He has not cut it. Chris Middleton too, but really, but you know, because Drew Holiday to me acquires more importance than Middleton because he was the offseason acquisition. Right. Um, and and you know, so he was kind of the added piece, the guy who was supposed to make the difference. And of course, you know, if the Bucks had not given up on Malcolm Brogdon. You know, they might have had the roster which worked for them. So, so for that reason, Holiday right. uh, acquires a certain unique centrality in that this was the guy they brought in to be the difference maker. So far, hasn't happened. So he needs to rise up in these next two games. And you have to attack James Harden on the defensive end. Make him play defense. Make him, you know, move laterally. Like you said, his hamstring's not going to be anywhere near close to 100% by the end of this series. I don't care. I mean – hamstrings just don't heal in a week so make him have to make tough decisions he'll not I mean he'll he'll make a business decision and he'll let Drew Holiday get to the lane they should be able to ma maximize that matchup of whoever James Harden is covering and it's either going to be it's either going to be Drew Holiday or it's going to be probably who's the, trying to think who their two guard is maybe a Forbes Bryn Forbes might be the guy but you have to attack him on the defensive end as well so all right Last last topic I want to get to a little French Open. I know you, you're a big tennis follower, and as am I. What a performance over the weekend! Novak Djokovic in a in, beats Nadal on his court in in Paris on the clay Friday night in the semifinals. Then on Sunday he comes back from down two sets to Nicholas Sipsipas and beats Sipsipas in five sets to win to win his 19th major championship. What are your thoughts? I mean, there's obviously the discussion of who's the better, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer. They're all right there at 19 and 20 majors. Just give me your thoughts on how do you rank them at this point? Obviously, Federer's 39 years old. Djokovic and Nadal are 32, 33, 34-ish range. So Federer's got them by four or five years. But just your general thoughts of who's, how do you stack those three in this era? Yeah, well, it's certainly, you know, we're, we are headed toward a situation in which Novak Djokovic is going to be number one. He's going to be recognized as the best of his era, partly because of his wins head-to-head -head against Federer and Nadal at majors. The fact that he was able to figure out Nadal at Roland Garros, you know, he did it in 2015, but that was, that was a year when Nadal was physically and mentally off. He had got, he had undergone appendicitis, had a case of appendicitis, right. just wasn't his normal physical self. That was kind of a throwaway year for Nadal. So like, this is the first time that Nadal was at the height of his powers and Djokovic took him down at the French Open and then won the title. You know, when Djokovic beat Nadal in 2015 at Roland Garros, he didn't win the title. Stan Wawrinka beat him in the final. So, and this is also the first time Nadal's lost at Roland Garros in a semifinal or final. Finally, he was 26 and 0 situations heading into this tournament. So Djokovic finally did that. And then we also have to look at the reality that if Djokovic wins Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, he wins the Grand Slam. He becomes the first guy to win all four majors in the same calendar year since Rod Laver in 1969. So if Djokovic does that, if he wins Wimbledon and the U.S. Oh, Open yeah. to win the Grand Slam, he's going to have ownership of a lot of 
milestones that Nadal and Federer aren't going to have. So Wimbledon, it's going to be interesting with the short turnaround from 2015 through 2019. There have been three weeks between Roland Garros and Wimbledon. Right. It was two weeks for a long time. They finally saw some sense to give the players more rest, recuperation time in 2015. But then with the pandemic, Roland Garros moved its tournament back, to satisfy some regulations. And but now you have the old two week break. So it could be a physical test for Djokovic, even though he's the guy to beat at Wimbledon. So that's going to be a physical challenge for him. But uh, it's certainly trending in Djokovic's directions because he's just he's done things that the other two haven't done quite as much. I mean, Nadal has the 13 French Open titles. Federer has eight Wimbledons. Also, the, the Federer record that's never going to be broken, 23 straight major semifinals. Like that is the Joe DiMaggio 56 game hitting streak of tennis. No one's going to touch that. But Djokovic has beaten Federer and Nadal in major tournaments more than Federer and Nadal have beaten him. You know, that, that's the kind of thing which decides these legacies. This, uh, this semifinal, Djokovic-Nadal, was the most important men's semifinal right. since 2018 Wimbledon. That 2018 Wimbledon semifinal was a five-setter. Djokovic won 9-7 in the fifth. He saved two break points at seven all in the fifth set. Djokovic just seems to be the best of the three at living on the edge. So he saved those two break points right. at seven all in the fifth against Nadal. He then saves two championship points at Wimbledon next year to beat Federer 13-12 uh, in the fifth set. So Djokovic wins these 50-50 matches. So it's not as though the margin between these players is huge. It's very small, but Djokovic usually wins those small margins. That's why he's probably going to be the best. Djokovic won't win the fan the fan vote because he's of the three he's probably the least liked by the fans. But from an on on court presentation and performance, remember Djokovic has now won the Grand Slam twice. He's won every one of the majors twice. That Nadal and Federer haven't done that, so that's another check on the on the ledger for for Djokovic. And again, Djokovic is only what 32, 30, Is he 32, 34. He's thirty four. He's okay. thirty four. Thirty five. So Djokovic has probably got three more years of prime tennis probably uh, yep. before, before he starts to slip off. And like you said, it, it's just going to be – it'll be very interesting to see about how he reacts in at Wimbledon. Obviously, they didn't play last year at Wimbledon because of the pandemic. Here's a crazy fact, Jason. You know, Pete Sampras, his final major title, the 2002 U.S. Open, he won over Andre Agassi. Very memorable match. Uh, that He won that last – of his 14 major titles uh, one month after turning 31. Djokovic, since turning 31, has won seven majors, which is half of Sampras's career-long total. So what Djokovic is doing in his 30s right. exclusively is by itself an amazing career. And like if so, if Djokovic wins four more majors, he will have won 11 majors after turning 31. Borg won 11 majors in his whole career. Rod Laver won 11 majors in his whole career. Djokovic could do that just after turning 31. That is nuts. Yeah, the last point I want to get on the French Open, we'll get you out of here, is I did not like how Roger Federer exited the French Open. I didn't like how he, how he won his match in dramatic fashion. It was a very tough match. Great job winning the match. Knowing, and, and he'll never admit this, but he knew he wasn't, he knew he was going to withdraw because he's trying to save himself for Wimbledon for another run at Wimbledon. He knew he wasn't going to be able to go deeper in the tournament. 
I didn't like that he didn't give the, his opponent the opportunity to at one advance, i.e. making a little more money for a guy who I'm sure needed the money, where Federer doesn't need the money. Two, the guy would have accumulated more Grand Slam points to increase his ranking. I didn't like how Federer just withdrew and obviously gave his next opponent, was it Berrettini? Yeah. He gave Berrettini a walk to the quarterfinals. I didn't like how he handled that. I wish he would have, if he was going to default, I wish he'd have defaulted either late in the fourth set or like John McEnroe suggested, default on match point. You know, everybody knows you're going to win. Default on match point. Give the guy an opportunity to make a couple more dollars, increase his ranking a little bit. I didn't like, and, and get a chance to advance in the tournament. I didn't like one bit how Roger Federer exited the French Open. That's a fair critique. I, I would say this, that the real problem with, you know, being unfair to fellow players in, in, in major tennis tournaments, the, re, the real problem is when players show up to a tournament, they're injured, they know that they're not way below 100%, and they just show up, they lose a match 3-3-2 three, three and two in 85 minutes, they get that first round paycheck, which is around $60,000 or so, and then they just get the plane flight home. That, to me, is the much more urgent uh, problem in tennis in terms of depriving other players of, you know, a financial opportunity. You know, Kupfer, who uh, was Federer's opponent in that third-round match, so he got a third-round paycheck. That's about $130,000 or so. So he made out okay. It's really the the show up in the draw. Because, like, b- before the draw, it's, it's up to the player to determine whether he pulls out or not. So if the player pulls out before the draw, you know, another player gets placed in the draw. But after the tournament begins, that's a walkover. So there's no player who can replace you. So that is really before the tournament starts. And I don't know what Federer's view of his body, his physical shape was before the tournament, but, uh, you know, he won three matches. And so, you know, you play to win, and and he 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 he's trying to fight for rankings points before Wimbledon, so that he gets a decent enough seed, so that hopefully he'll avoid facing Djokovic in the quarters. Which you know he was he was on he was on that side of the that was another part of that yeah. was he was on that side of the bracket with Nadal and Djokovic. That's right. So he wants those he wants those fourth round points, uh, so that hopefully he'll he'll move up, so that he doesn't have to play Djokovic yeah. in the quarterfinals at Wimbledon. So. It's really with the first round, like but these decisions need to be made before a tournament begins. You either enter the draw or you or you stay out of the draw. And so another person can take your place. That's where it really needs to happen. I agree. But I just didn't like how he I wish you I mean, again, he could to me, he's he's the consummate professional. You know, he could have handled it. He's, he's a consummate sportsman. Everybody loves him and nobody's going to kill him for it. I just thought it was a little dubious the way he handled it and not giving the guy an up the guy he beat in the third round an opportunity to advance in the tournament. And the other thing we should say here is that, and this is what I think Federer should have done. He should have just showed up against Berrettini and took an ass kicking, you know, that too. Show, show up, show up, lose two, two and two experiment with your game, you know, right, try right. things out, just to show up, you know, and it, it, you might lose in 90 minutes, but people will say, okay, he showed up, he took his beating, but you know, he gave, he gave, people but a, a match on television that people were right. wanting to see i think that's the, what he should have done that you know he didn't have to go all out you know, like people knew that his he and he was transparent about saying that his body what you know he wasn't sure about how he felt but then just show up and take the beating from berrettini like that's that shouldn't dent his confidence no. like if he if he knows that he's not fully ready then losing 
two, two, and three in in uh, ninety minutes, that that shouldn't be a problem. Right. So, not, was it really? Did he have to avoid those ninety minutes? He could have just shown up for those ninety minutes. That's what I think he should have done. I agree because if you don't, because again, I can promise you, he was training two or three days after he withdrew. He was at some court training somewhere for ninety minutes that day. So it's not like he just took a complete week off and didn't do anything. He was. He was doing some kind of physical train, but okay. Irregardless, again, not killing, not trying to kill Federer, but handle it a little bit better as we move forward. Well, Matt, awesome job, man. Keep up the great work. Follow Matt on Twitter at Matt Zemek, Z-E-M-E-K, all one word. Trojan Wire, you'll be you'll be following Matt college football season, following the USC Trojans. What's the uh, is there is there expectations real quick? Expectations for USC this fall? Are they expecting to be contenders here? They're definitely contenders. The schedule is very easy. USC doesn't play Oregon, doesn't play Washington, doesn't have a Friday night game. So no short weeks, no Friday night games to Washington State or, or, or Oregon State, which have proved thorny for the program in the past. The schedule is really good. The defense is expected to be solid, but no one trusts Clay Helton to coach a really good offense. That's where uh, the program is expected to stumble. And let's just be honest. USC fans want Clay Helton to be fired. That's the thing they want most from 2021. They want Matt Campbell. <laughs> they want an elite coach to take over. So frankly, if you ask a, most USC fans, you put 100 USC fans in a room, like 95 of them want the program to fail this year because that opens the door for Clay Helton to be fired, get a real coach, and then climb your way back up to the Pete Carroll standard. The, the, the Sunday after their first loss is when the Clay Helton death march will begin in, in, in La La Land, huh? Uh, yeah, so a lot of USC fans are privately hoping. They, they might not say it publicly, yeah. but they're hoping that San Jose State beats USC on September 4th. <laughs> well, Matt, great work, man. Again, follow Matt on, on, on Twitter, Trojan Wire on US, as part of the USA Today uh, network. And uh, have a great week, Matt. And I appreciate you coming on to another episode of the Powers on Sports podcast. Thanks, Matt. Oh, it's fun to be with you, Jason. Thank you. All right. We'll be right back in just a couple minutes with Chris Torello from Spectrum, Spectrum Sports here in the Tampa Bay area to talk hockey playoffs and a little baseball scandal with all the foreign substances. We'll be back in just a minute. Thanks for tuning into the Powers on Sports podcast. We really appreciate it. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Before we get back to the episode, want to mention Titan Home Lending. If you have any home financing needs in the state of Florida, reach out to me, Jason Powers, Titan Home Lending, 205-790-1404. I can help you with a home purchase, with a refinance, with a cash-out refinance, with a renovation loan, a VA loan, FHA loan, conventional loan, and virtually anything in between relative to home financing. So reach out to me at Titan Home Lending, 205-790-1404. You can reach me on email at jpowers at titanhl.com. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. All right, welcome back to the Powers on Sports podcast. I'm your host, Jason, down here in Tampa. Appreciate you finding us on the various podcast platforms, uh, Google, Apple, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, and whatever else platform you might be finding us. So appreciate you uh, listening to our interview with Matt Zemick, who covers USC athletics. We're talking some college football playoff action. And now we're very pleased to welcome in Chris Torello 
from Spectrum Sports and Bay News 9 down here in Tampa. Chris is a reporter for uh, Bay News 9, and he covers all things sports in the Tampa Bay area. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. I appreciate you joining us. Yeah, man, this is going to be fun. Yeah, we're going to hit on a couple of uh, local topics. We're going to hit on the, the Islanders and Lightning uh, NHL semifinal series. We're going to hit on, get a quick thought on the uh, Vegas, Montreal as well. And then we're going to hit on the uh, MLB memo that's come out this week concerning their foreign substances and kind of the role Rob Manfred's playing in this whole situation and how just how that's going to affect the, the pitchers and all that good stuff. So first off, uh, I know you're up from the Northeast and uh, – you, you've been covering the Lightning for, for many years down here in the Tampa Bay area. Just give me your overall thoughts on the Lightning in the, in the Islanders series so far through two games. I think they're the two best teams you expect to see at this point. I know it's not a traditional Eastern Conference final because of the way divisions were set up, but I, I actually liked it this year. I would love to see maybe a split because I think it could create better rivalries and I think you could get a better sense of different teams playing each other but seeing the islanders and the lightning it's second straight year they're meeting at this stage so i i like that i think it does create a little bit of a playoff atmosphere for both teams whenever they do play going forward um i think they're both they play their their own style and you know the lightning maybe they do things with a little bit more grace that's always kind of been something that well, they they got knocked for before they won the cup last year i think they've learned how to play with more physicality and I think the Islanders, they're just, uh, they represent their area so well. I mean, when you're on Long Island or from that New York tri-state area, you have to be hard-nosed, and that's the Islanders. And then Barry Trotz kind of brought in a, a better system for them. I think they, if it's their style, they're very tough uh, defensively. They close very well in front of Varlamov. They don't let the puck slide through the middle of the, that offensive zone, which is what Kucherov loves to do to get it to Stammer. So I think it's a real chess match. John Cooper loves that about this about these types of series is if they hit first how do we hit back you know you take our rook how do we take your knight type of thing so uh i'm really interested to see how this series you know shifts back to long island and then how this thing is going to look when it comes back to tampa monday night absolutely no i mean it's it's very apparent they don't like each other very a lot of skirmishes in the first couple of games especially game two in that first period a lot of you know you know serious physicality like you mentioned just um, the Lightning have been finally have gotten some production out of their defense. They got they, they got a goal out of their defense. That's one thing. And to me, if you're the Islanders, you're playing very well five on five. You know, the Lightning took a couple careless penalties in game one, which which yeah. cost them. Game two, you had a little controversy. You had the, the interference call called against the Lightning, which turned into a light uh, Islander power play goal. Then you had the 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 did the, the lightning have too many men on the ice when the when the lightning scored? Just your thoughts on on, on that and the officiating a little bit through two games. The refs are horrible. That's it. <laughs> no, I mean that's it's and I'm not saying that to be like you know I, and I again like you were talking before we started like I'm not a homer reporter of any type. Like I'm watching the game equally. Like if an Islander scored a great goal, I'm gonna say wow that was pretty. You know, right. so I'm not I'm, I don't care. Um, I'll say this. I think in game one. I thought the officiating was actually pretty good because it was pretty clean. There was maybe only four or five penalties called. And look, referees, umpires, however they want to be identified, 
they don't want to be the difference. Like if you're in a baseball game, the umpire wants to call that outside corner strike. He better call it all nine, 10, 11 innings. He better not change halfway through the game. That completely changes the flow. Same thing in basketball. If a referee says, hey, you can grab the back of a guy's jersey when you're both posted up against the basket, and then he calls it in the fourth quarter, that's a completely, you know, you're changing the the outcome because you've already laid down the rules and then you're just moving the goalpost. So same thing with hockey. I thought in game two, the fit, well, this picked up eight seconds in. I mean, we're getting penalties. Pat Maroon is taking on the Islanders bench. Um, you know, so I think the second game was more the players, I think saying to the refs, we're just going to go after each other. This is our series now. And I think the refs did a horrible job. I thought there were way too many penalties, but look, the lightning needed to get on the power play. They only had a couple opportunities and you saw what they did. I mean, you know, they got their chances. Now they were able to score five on five, which is what they need to do. But um, I think they rattled the Islanders. And um, I think that's, that was a much more indicative of what a playoff series can feel like at Amelie arena in game two. And um, you know, I thought the Islanders were a little more on their heels. They were very comfortable for a lot, for much of those six periods. But when the lightning decided to turn it on, it was an onslaught. They can go, they can score three goals in a heartbeat. Yep. There's, there's, there's always that 10 minute stretch where you're like, God, you're getting Goliath here. And um, you know, I think the Islanders saw that in game two. Now that, now that this series shifts back to Uniondale, obviously the, all the, 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 the lore and history of Uniondale, the last year in that building, th that building has been on fire the first couple of rounds so far when the Islanders have had home games against Pittsburgh and Boston. The, and, and the funny thing is the, the lightning seem to play better on the road. For whatever yeah. reason, they play really, really well on the road where they yeah. sometimes will struggle a little bit at Amelie Arena. Your thoughts as we move back to Uniondale, that place is going to be electric for the, for, the, for the swan song for the Islanders on Long Island. Yeah, I mentioned it to our viewers the other day. I said, look, they're 5-1 and one away from Amelie. I don't know what it is. It's, and, and the funny thing is, is they've lost four straight home game ones in the playoffs, right. dating back to a couple of years. So they just are more comfortable on the road. I think they like the us versus the world mentality for whatever reason. There's a reason the lightning looked so good in the bubble in Toronto and then across to where, where Vancouver and Edmonton, wherever it was, because they didn't have to worry about going home, traveling, all this stuff. I think the lightning are very comfortable wearing the road whites yeah. and they just, they kind of go into their little cocoon, their little bubble. I think John Cooper loves it when they're on the road because there's more structure. There's a more routine of, Hey, we're in the hotel, we go watch film, we go to morning skate, we go back, and then we go to the, the rink and we do our job. And that's how we play. So that's why I think, you know, in John Cooper's mind, there's a chance you come back 3-1 because they could silence Nassau Coliseum tonight. And the other thing, Islanders fans were getting on Lightning fans saying Emily was not loud the first two games. Like, what are they pumping in crowd noise? What's going on? Well, guess what? The Lightning have a chance to shut you up tonight because right. that's what they do very well. Remember, Steven Stamkos, I don't think, has a goal in these first two games. I could see him scoring. I could see a lot of other guys getting involved. Anthony Sorelli should be okay. He kind of had a cheap shot there. And there was a lot of, you know, there's a lot of bad blood at the end after the final buzzer. Right. So we're going to see some, I think you're going to see both teams come out flying tonight. But the Lightning love that. The Lightning love when you put all the adrenaline into your own team. And they're just sitting there saying, oh, we can play our game now. We've got the best goaltender in the world. We've got the best four lines. Let's go play. So I think what you said about Ness with the Coliseum and, you know, they're going to Belmont next year. So 
I think there is going to be a little desperation from Islanders fans because they know they don't know if they're going to be back for a game six or what this is going to look like if they're going to get to a cup final. So, yeah, and I think if the Bolts can get an early goal, you're going to see that same uneasiness that you saw from Lightning fans. Right, right. All right. So, how do you think this? How do you think this unfolds? You th- obviously, do you think it's going to come back to Tampa? Obviously, do you think it's three one two two? And then how do you think this series wraps up? You know, I initially said uh, Bolts and six. Uh, I mean, I, part of me would love this to go all seven. I think it's that type of a series. I think right. everyone would love to see that. It would get another game back to Long Island. Um, I just, I think the Bolts are going to be up some fashion when they come back. Um, so that means it has to be three, one, right. So then does that mean the Islanders play better in game five and then deny them that right to win it at home? I don't know, but something just tells me the, the bolts are going to start to show why they're the defending Stanley cup champs. And I think that starts tonight. And, and so, yeah, I, I definitely like whenever they're on the road because they just something about them on the road. Yeah. So it wouldn't shock me if they win both games. Let's, let's jump over to the, to the Western Conference final. Quick, uh, kind of an upset last night. Vegas wins pretty comfortably in game one. Montreal comes back and plays pretty well last night. Evens up the series. 1-1 heading back to Montreal. Just your quick thoughts about that series. And does Montreal have a legitimate threat to win a series? Or is it more just, hey, they're going to hang around and they might steal two games, but they really don't have a chance to win the series? Whenever you have a goaltender that is as good as price, you can win. And that's, I mean, look, we've seen guys, I mean, you've seen some, I I think back to um, the Devils and the Mighty Ducks back in 2003, they had a goaltender that had no business taking them all the way to that game seven in New Jersey. And, um, you know, for whatever reason, the Ducks, they just were able to do it. When you have a hot goaltender, you know, I think about Jonathan Quick with the Kings, I think about some other guys that have, you know, gotten hot and all of a sudden it's like, wow, we can't stop this guy. And then the guys in front of them are like, oh, we, we get one goal. We're going to win this game. And that's how. T- so I think Montreal's, you know, and you hear the funny thing is, is you hear it from guys like Pierre Lebrun and some of the others, you know, who really cover the, the Canadian teams. They said it, you know, look, don't be surprised if Montreal makes a run here. They, they're building a team here. So it doesn't shock me to see anyone get to a certain point. But yeah, Montreal, maybe because we all didn't pay attention to the Canadian league this year we didn't get to see them play you know the 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 teams in Boston and Tampa and go all over like usual so maybe that's our own fault but Montreal forget the points I mean they're they're a skilled team and I think Vegas though something tells me Vegas is going to find a way to win this series and and I think that's the way it is now I I will say this just you know inside baseball for everybody every single media outlet wants Vegas because we do not want to deal with Canadian COVID. We don't want to deal with anyone saying, well, it's in my, you know, we have to go up to Montreal for games. We don't want to do that. So selfishly, I'd like to keep the puck in the U S for the Stanley cup. I know God bless Canada and what they're going through with their drought, but it needs to go on till 2022 until y'all lift the restrictions. And first of all, who doesn't want to, who doesn't want to go to Vegas for two or three days, man? Vegas, baby. I mean, yeah, come on. I'm, I'm going. I've already got the trip planned. So <laughs> that's I mean, happen. <laughs> and I, I mean, and say what you want. 
Vegas has created one of the most electric environments in all of sports. I mean, with yeah. that with that opening and how they do their pregame, that's an unbelievable environment. It would, to me, it would be the best matchup for the NHL for TV. Vegas and Tampa with the two best teams. Oh, yeah, I think yes. would be from a skill perspective. I think it'd be an unbelievable final. Yeah, and you know what's cool is Marsha Schultz has played really well for the for the night, and he's a former Lightning player. He was called up from the Crunch, and it's funny because he didn't do much here. Then he goes to Florida and has like a 30-goal season, and now he's been Mr. Consistent for yep. Vegas, like 20, 22, 20. I mean, he's been really – so it'd be kind of fun to see that as well because you know Vegas had to take some players from other teams when they when they got into the league. But, look, they've made it this far, what, three of their first four years? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. So it should give hope to Kraken's fans out there in the West. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, well, you're listening to uh, Chris Torello, sports reporter for Spectrum Sports and Bay News 9 down here in Tampa. He hosts uh, – t- t- tell, tell the folks what the show you host in, e- in the evening. On, you guys do Spectrum Sports in the evening every night. Yeah, Spectrum Sports 360 is live at 1030 every night in the entire Bay Area. We go all over. I mean, it's great because um, people who are Spectrum customers, a lot of places can actually – if they have the Spectrum News app, they could probably find us that way too. So we invite people to do that. Um, and, and it's great. We're the only half-hour show in Tampa. And um, – do a lot of great features. I've got a cool feature on um, uh, lightning photographer, Mark Lamaglio, who some fans know because he, he was actually hurt in a car accident when he was running in March and um, he has been confined to a wheelchair, but he's still shooting from the game. So we kind of go a little inside that and what he's been through and what the team has done to help him. So we'll have that story through uh, our app and through uh, spectrumnews.com. Yeah. Chris, Chris and his, in his, Colleagues do a great job covering the Tampa Bay area, high school sports, pro sports, college sports. They do a lot of good feature stories on, on kids and athletes and coaches and stuff like that. So definitely it's a great watch. You can catch Chris on Twitter at Torello sports mm-hmm. as his Twitter handle. Again, does a lot of good stuff on Twitter as well. Let's, let's transition to the uh, MLB. Obviously major league baseball has come out with this memo this week concerning the foreign substances of what pitchers can and can't use. They've come up with a, "Quote unquote suspension," even though you're not, you're getting paid to go on vacation for ten days if you do get caught. Just some general uh, your feeling about should should baseball even police that at all, or should they allow the players to police that? How do you think that whole situation of using too much stuff on the ball should have been handled? Yeah, first off, if I need if I just really don't want to be around my team for ten days, I'm shoving honey around my waistline and saying, <laughs> "Oh, check me up. I gotta go, guys. Sorry, I, I gotta go." So um, I think it's really what bothers me is not that MLB wants to be proactive. I get it. I completely understand that. But what bothers me is when you see a, when you see players consistently leaving games, and not only fans but managers and the coaches holding their collective breath because you see they're, they're you know they you know we saw Tyler I know we're gonna get into Tyler Glasnow but you see them moving their arm you see them kind of you know they, they start kind of squeezing their hand and you're like something's wrong here and it usually leads to something bad when they go through the diagnosis so we've seen it with a bunch of players this year and it, you know I know people got on Garrett Cole the Yankee starter because he couldn't answer a proper question the other day about if he uses a certain substance, but then he actually had a really good response to Joel Sherman, one of the New York press members after his start on Wednesday night against the blue Jays. He said, he goes, he goes, we need something. He goes, we need dialogue. And there is no dialogue with the commissioner's office. He said, we just don't, that's the problem. When you have all these guys 
who, who make the most money on your team, who the value, I mean, analytics, pitching, they're going to keep more pitchers than they are regular bench players. And you're not willing to go and help them. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah, the arms loosen up now that it's getting hot outside and that's great, you know, but it also makes it harder to, you know, to grip the ball in these summer months. So I think they need to have communication and there's no communication with MLB. And so I think that's where the pitchers are going to get frustrated and you're going to see more injuries. And if you see more injuries, then maybe people step up. But at that point, you've lost arms for 18 months then. And that's, that's because that's what Tommy John, that's what all these injuries are. You know, that's, that's the sad part is it doesn't, it's not like it's like, Oh, I got hurt. I'll be back in two weeks. You know, this is something a lot different. I'm going to, I'm going to push back a little bit to me. I was, I was curious. I'm curious to know why, you know, I I saw Pedro Martinez talk about it. He's, he made a great comment. Mm. I used rosin and sweat and that, that created plenty of grit for me. Rosin bags, sweat, which was all legal. Nobody said a word about it. Why can't guys continue to use that? And two, why are these these organizations starting off using these substances all the way back in single A ball? Why don't they teach them to throw the ball either with no substances or with minimal rosin bag, whatever? Why do we have to get to where it's such an extreme on the other end where it's so much of a of a grip issue to where to me, and I'm not a pitching pitcher, so I don't and I'm not a scientist. But to me, I think it's a little – I don't like that they're blaming every one of these injuries on on not me me not being able to use as much sticky stuff as as I want to. No, I get that. And that – because, I mean, yeah, let's face it. I mean, it also is about, you know, spin control. It's about, you know, where you're going to put the ball. It can help, you know, take some stuff out of it. So – but I think the ball is also a little different, and I think that's where they're maybe getting at it. I remember the NBA had a – had a basketball they tried to use one time. They changed the whole style of the ball. It was a completely different material. Kobe Bryant took one shot with it, and he said, this is the worst ball I've ever used, and they changed the ball back. So, um, you know, now I get what you're saying about Pedro. Pedro Martinez may be the greatest pitcher I've ever seen uh, in my lifetime. No offense to anyone else. I loved Roger Clemens. Um, you know, I loved watching Randy Johnson, but, you know, even growing up as, you know, in that, in that New York area, I still had all that respect in the world for Pedro. So you're right about Pedro, but I also think it depends on how you grow up. Like I highly doubt Mariano Rivera, when he was fashioning a glove out of a milk cart in, in Panama, learned how to use the sticky stuff. You know, like he'll say to this day, God gave him the cutter and I believe him. Because I think guys like Pedro, guys like Mariano, they just use what was there for them. I think there's a whole different cultural setup in the in the states where guys are going through with their private pitching coaches. You know, they get in that locker room, they get in the clubhouse, and they may have some of the older minor leaguers saying, "Look, use this stuff." It's like that scene in um, Major League, right, where. Vaughn looks over and Eddie's like, look, I got Barbasol, you know, I got jalapeno running down my nose. Like, he's like, you put snot on the ball. Like that's, (laughs) you know, like there's the trade secrets there. So I get what you're saying. And I'm not saying I like it, but I think we've gotten to a point where it's not just for cheating, (laughs) but I think it's, it is, I think it is important if, if the players are saying, look, I have something that I need, just give me some grip. Let's all agree right. they need a grip. I mean, I'm like, well, can't you just rub dirt and then pick up the ball? Whatever. The ball gets brown or dirty. So what? You know, like maybe that's what they need to do. I don't know. Let's find a substance that works for everybody. 
it seems to me it seems to me that the pitchers have gone over a little too far to the right they, uh-huh. I think the batters, like you said, wouldn't mind if they used a little bit of something, but it's gotten to the point where it's so much of an extreme that they've yeah. not done a great job policing themselves. That's you know, they the, the pitchers have allowed themselves to go so far over here. Yeah. You know, batting averages that are, are at an all-time low or a 30-year low or whatever the number is. Uh-huh. They're batting under 230 as a team, and that's not good for the product of no. baseball in general. No, t- well, Tampa's Pete Alonso saying that they're yeah. – uh, they're looking at free agent classes and they're changing the ball up. So if you want conspiracy theory, that's, that's yeah. conspiracy. So, yeah, I know. But I, when you hear Tyler Glass now after he got hurt saying what he did, and I don't know, I just, there's gotta be something there. And Glass knows the player rep for, for the race. So I think that holds a little bit of weight. You know, if, if a guy like that who's been in the league starting to really establish himself, um, you know, cause he is one of the best pitchers, the way he, that breaking ball he has. Um, and we saw him get hurt a couple of years ago when he was on fire the first two months and then he missed a couple months. So I think he'd like to see something done too. And look, if, if you come back and they give you what you want and you still get hurt, well then maybe it's just on your body then at that point. Right. Right. What are your, just your thoughts on how does major league baseball, I, I get you're trying to, you're trying to curtail this. How do you, how do you create a 10 game suspension with, with pay? How, are, how from a public perception perspective to the fans, how do you justify saying we're going to suspend you for 10 games, but we're going to pay you? Because I think, I think what they're trying to say is, look, we're, I think it's, it's a whole opening of the door of like, look, we're going to start trying to work with you guys. This is more of a warning than a punishment. Like we got to pull you away for 10 games, but hopefully you get the message that of like, look, this is what happens now it's going to be, but then I think it's going to change. Like if this is something that they feel is as bad as steroids, it will. Cause didn't steroids start off with like some stupid, like, it, I don't know if it was 10, it was nothing. I remember right. like when they first started the PED thing and they were like, well, you're going to be gone for this. And then it was without pay, but it was like a, it was like a vacation. Like who cared? It was like a furlough. And then, then it got serious 50, 80, a hundred, you know, a season then you're banned. You know, and they have done it. They have banned some players, some minor leaguers, but right. they have banned players. And there's a couple major league guys on the doorstep. So right. it's going to, I think it's the opening. And then what I think they do is they try and find that happy medium you and I were talking about where there's some type of substance that pulls the pitchers back into reality of here's what you can use, here's what you can't use. And then after that, it's game on, where if, if I find something, you're gone for, for 50. Right. You know, like we're going to give you the legal stuff. Yeah. If you use the illegal stuff, you're gone. So that's what I think it's going to come down to. One more baseball thought and I'll get you out of here. Just your thoughts on, on the Rays. Not many people thought the Rays would be, would be playing as well as they played. Well, Me, I'm right there with you. After what, yeah. after what happened with uh, Blake Snell in the world series, you know, all that stuff with Kevin Cash, nobody thought the Rays would be here losing Morton Snell, you know, not really adding a whole lot as far as the the, the the roster goes. Just your 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 thoughts on the Rays and how, can is this sustainable? Yeah. First of all, and two, what a good job by Kevin Cash in that front office putting the roster together. Oh God, that you know I thought when they lost Heim Bloom they were going to see because he's more of that international guy for for their for their team and Eric Neander just continues to prove that it's like oh we want to lose this guy to the Dodgers that's fine we want to lose this guy oh it's fine. Uh, they're, they're just do such a great job and they do 
what amazes me is what they do with the constraints right. that their, their owner, and I use that term loosely with Stu Sternberg, wants to do and says, we, got, we can't spend more than this. Okay, because you, you're really poor, Stu, right? Like you're, you're so poor. Um, you can spend 90 million a year if you wanted to. But yeah, I think it's crazy that they've done a great job. Rich Hill, my God, I never saw that coming. He's the AL, he was the AL pitcher of the month. Um, you know, and, and I think what really works is I've said this, they are the best little league team I have ever seen in the majors. <laughs> and what I know it's a compliment. What that I mean is. is what I mean is Brett felt like if okay, Kevin walks to the mound, Kevin's a dad, he walks to the mound and he's okay, um, Tyler's out of the game. Okay, uh, Brett, tell your mom you need the first baseman's mitt from the car. Right. Uh, no, you know what? You're going to go play center field. Kevin, go here. Uh, what should Yandy? Yandy, go over here. Like, it is that feeling, like, where they're just like, you can play anywhere. It's like yep. the Little League All-Star game out of Babe Ruth, and everyone goes to someone's house to jump in the pool after the game. And I love it because there is such a purity to the way they play Every day you're just like, oh, we're going to go play baseball today. You know, it's like that scene in The Rookie where Dennis Quaid goes, hey, Brooksy, you know what we get to do today? We get to play baseball. And that's exactly what the Rays do. They don't think about anything but playing. And and he'll put his his closer in in the fifth inning. He'll put his his long man in to be the closer. He'll, you know – one I mean, thing I don't like is is that you never can get attached to players because that's you true. Know they're gonna be gone. That's true. Like, I felt bad for Willie Adamas. I remember him walking off the field in, in Dunedin, you know, because uh, that's where the series was when they traded him. But they had to do it. So yeah, um, you know, and and look, and then everyone's like, oh, maybe they're bringing Wander up, and then they bring up another kid, and that Taylor's playing pretty well. Yeah. So it's it's like they turn them out and the way that they do things from Port Charlotte to Montgomery uh, to Durham, it's, it's amazing what they have in their arsenal. Their Shane player development. A, you know, Shane McClanahan's a USF bull product. Shane yep. Boss just got to, um, so uh, just got to bull Durham. So they've got guys and, and I think it's fun. And yes, it is sustainable. I did say this was going to be a wild card team. Cause I thought the Yankees, not the Red Sox, right. were going to win a hundred some odd games, but I did think the Rays would get to 95, 96 wins. I just didn't think it would be enough. Now it is enough. And now the question is, are they going to do something they've never done, which is win a hundred games in the regular season. That's how good of a team this is. If they, now Tyler's going to be gone, but if they can find a way, yeah. I think they're right there. I think they're the best team in baseball. Yeah, they lost a couple to the White Sox. The second, the runner on second and extras is the dumbest rule in the history of baseball. <laughs> but and that's why they lost that game. But other than that, I think yeah, they're in this for the long haul. Awesome, man. Well, Chris, I really appreciate it, man. I, I know you're uh, one of the tidbit. I know you're newly engaged. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm uh, going down that that uh, road. Yeah. <laughs> Well, congratulations to you and the missus on your future wedding. And uh, and uh, appreciate the time today. You can, again, catch Chris on Spectrum Sports 360 here in the Tampa Bay area weeknights at 1030. You can catch Chris on Twitter at Torello Sports. And, again, he'll be covering the Lightning uh, Islanders series here uh, throughout. And uh, he does a great job here in the Tampa Bay area. So I really appreciate your time, Chris, and have a great week, man. All right, thanks. Talk soon. Okay, thanks, Chris. Have a great week. Thanks, bud. Thanks again for listening to the Powers on Sports podcast. 
Remember to subscribe, rate, and review on whatever podcast platform you are hearing us tonight. Remember, you can reach out to us on Twitter at Sports. So we'd love to hear your feedback, comments, suggestions for future episodes. And again, thanks for all the support. Remember to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. And we'd love to see you back next time for the next episode of the Powers on Sports podcast. Have a great week.